all right? Well, Pastor Matt, it's so good to be sharing uh, uh, chapter 14 of the story with you. I would tell you this morning that many of us sort of made a New Year's resolution to include the story and the story of Scripture and the Bible in our lives and in our homes uh, throughout the new year. And if you're anything like most New Year's resolutions, maybe you're getting a little lax right about now. And uh, you're thinking, eh, I'm not going to get over to Life Group, or eh, maybe I'm not going to get into that story with the kids this week. I just encourage you, double down, get back into it this week. I had a great time doing a Kingdom Torn in Two with my boys last night. I had them say Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The two-year-old did great uh, doing that. I was very proud, but I just encourage you, get back into the story, and as you hear about it here on Sundays, and as you talk about it in your life groups, take that home, help your children to hide that word deep in their heart, and uh, it's important because there's going to come a day where you're going to get the opportunity to share the story of what God has done in the world. And there's going to come a day when your kids get the opportunity to share the story of what God has done in the world. And you want to be able to share that story with full assurance that you have a full idea of what's going on. It's such a powerful tool in our hands. If you have your Bibles today, your story Bibles, you can open to page 194. If you have your regular standard Bible, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. And as we sort of saw there in the bumper video, this is a moment that we have to be concerned about because the kingdom is about to get torn in two. And one of the reasons that this takes place is a lack of integrity among God's leadership. Years ago when I started my undergraduate work, everybody who was going to go into full-time ministry was taken away on a retreat in our very first semester in school. And the whole idea of the retreat was to impress upon God's future leaders just how important a task that they had in leading God's people. It was an incredibly important task. And I don't know about you, but I can't remember maybe my 10 favorite sermons of all time, but I remember the sermon from that night for one reason only. As that gentleman was trying to impress upon us the importance of being God's leader, he stood there at the beginning of the message and just said one word, integrity. And he let it ring throughout the room. And then he said it again, integrity. Now, for us northern Midwestern nasally speakers who like salad and things like that, what he was saying was integrity. But he was saying it in an accent that I like to call classic bass southern preacher. All right? Integrita is our integrity. And I remember he said it over and over and over again as necessary for us to be God's leaders. Over and over and over again, I started making chicken scratches in my notes for every time he said integrita. And he lost me in the 40s. That's how many times he, he talked about the, the concept of integrity that night. Now, if you remember last week, as God was speaking to Solomon, Israel had reached the high point of their relationship with God. They had built a temple. People were serving God. God was making them a nation to be modeled after throughout the world. People were coming to know the one true God through Israel at this time. Things were going well. And God gave Solomon a warning. And you don't have to turn there. It will come up on the screen in, in 1 Kings 9.4. And the warning was not heeded. But God was giving Solomon his marching orders, and he said in 9.4, If you will walk faithfully before me with integrity of heart and uprightness, dot, 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 I am going to continue to work my plan out in you and in Israel. 
that word, those words, integrity of heart and uprightness, those were the words God was trying to impress upon his leader as necessary for him to do all that God had asked for him to do. So you might be thinking this morning, well, that's great, Pastor Matt. I can see where you're going. You're going to talk about what type of leaders that we should follow within the church. Au contraire, mon frere, that's not where I'm going this morning. Where I'm going this morning is to talk about you. Because my job as a pastor and a preacher is to move you on to God's agenda for your life. And when we think about what leadership is, leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. That's what John Maxwell says. And we as Christians and disciples of Jesus Christ are supposed to be leaders wherever we go. People of influence in whatever we do. Our homes should be influenced by Christ for us. Our workplaces should be influenced by Christ in us. Our schools should be influenced by Christ through us. Wherever we go and whatever we do, we are exerting leadership and influence for the name of Jesus Christ. And we have our marching orders as leaders for God. We must have integrity of heart and uprightness. Now, when you think about the word integrity, we often make it synonymous with honesty. But that's not what's taking place in the Hebrew language, the original language of the Old Testament. That idiom, integrity of heart, really means standing before somebody, recognizing that you are not walking in a way contrary to what they need. So when we see that idiom of integrity of heart, what we're seeing in the Old Testament is that God is saying, I need you to walk before me in a way that you know that we're on the same page. You have an innocence before me. You're not worried about our relationship at all. And uprightness truly means to be unbending, to stand up straight, and to walk in the way that God has for you to walk. Sadly, today we're going to see two kings that do not walk with integrity and uprightness of heart. They don't heed the voice of the Lord to Solomon, their father and their leader. And the kingdom of Israel, because of it, is split in two. Let's start on page 194 in the story, 1 Kings 12, 6, and let me set the stage. Solomon has died, and he's died not doing so well. His son Rehoboam comes to the throne, and he goes to the middle of Israel, to a place called Shechem, and all of the leaders of the 12 tribes come to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, and say, Rehoboam, we're inclined to make you king. Now granted, there was another man named Jeroboam who was waiting in the wings, one of Solomon's greatest officials. Jeroboam was a really good leader. But they were willing to give Rehoboam a chance, but they came to Rehoboam and said, Rehoboam, listen, your father taxed us too heavily. He also engaged in forced labor, and we didn't like that. So, if you will consider lessening the load of taxation, and you will consider not forcing us to do conscripted labor, we'll consider following you. Rehoboam says, all right, go away for three days. I've got to consult some people, and I'll give you my answer. And that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 12, verse 6, page 194. King Rehoboam then consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, if today you'll be my, a, a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him, and he consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say, lighten the yoke your father placed on us? 
Well, the young men who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I'll make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. And this is what Rehoboam goes and says to the nation of Israel. Now, I was reading in my English Standard Version of the Bible this morning, or or this week as I studied for this, and the title of the chapter is simply Rehoboam's Folly, because that is dumb. You have a vast number of people who are saying to you, listen, pal, your father was too hard on us. Your father laid too heavy a yoke on us. He was not nice to us. The kingdom got rich, but this was tough for us. We have a guy over here named Jeroboam. He was one of your father's greatest officials. He's an awesome dude. We sort of are inclined to follow him, but if you'll lessen the load, we'll follow you. And this guy goes out and says, yeah, my father whipped you with whips. Well, I'll whip you with scorpions. How are you going to whip somebody with a scorpion? I mean, this guy really is the highlight of biblical stupidity, really, that we've ever seen. I mean, try to find somebody as brilliant as Rehoboam, you're going to have a hard time in the Bible. So what we have here is complete ignorance by this guy. Complete ignorance. And you say, yeah, we see this. He isn't very smart, but that's not what I mean by ignorance. What I mean by ignorance is that Rehoboam has not in any way acknowledged God. Where is God in this story? Where is God in Rehoboam coming to the throne? If you remember this kingdom that we're talking about, those are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the people who came through the Red Sea, who were given the law of Moses. These were the people who'd been given the promised land so that they could be a light to the nations and represent God to the world. Where is God in Rehoboam's equation? Where is he? When Saul came to the throne, God was around. When David came to the throne, God was certainly around. When Solomon came to the throne, there was acknowledgement that these are God's people, and God has a plan for them, and God helped me lead them. None of that exists here with Rehoboam. Therefore, Rehoboam had no integrity of heart. He couldn't walk in innocence before the Lord. He couldn't walk in line with the Lord because he didn't even think about the Lord. And so integrity of heart, which is what we are supposed to have as God's leader, was replaced by ignorance. He was completely ignorant of what God had for him and what God had for the people. Where is God's plan? Where is God's purpose? You don't see it because Rehoboam is enamored with the idea that I am king and my word is law. He thinks that this is his kingdom and he thinks that it's his by right. He ignores the history of his people, ignores the history that his father has had, ignores any voice of the Lord and goes straight for the advice of the elders. The truth is the Bible doesn't tell us that the advice of his father's elders was correct either. It doesn't say that. Maybe Rehoboam goes back to the people and says, I will lighten the load. That seems sensible. They go, oh, what a weak link. Let's rebel. We don't know what may have happened if he had followed the advice. But what we do not see is Rehoboam consulting the Lord. And obviously the answer that he gives is not too smart. 
You see, ignorant leaders treat God's stuff like it's theirs. People who are ignorant of God's plan and God's way and God's purposes treat everything that they have, every bit of favor from the Lord they've received, every gift that they have been endowed with as theirs. They don't consult the Lord. They don't think about the Lord. They don't think about how their life fits into the plan of God. After our time together this morning, I get to go and I get to address our worship team and all the various peoples that serve on our worship team on a Sunday morning. And I get to talk to them about how their life fits into the plan of God. And the gifts and the talents that they have from God are are given to them by God, for God, for his purpose. And it's exciting when we walk in that, but Rehoboam is ignorant of all of these concepts. And it leads him to make some really big mistakes. Now, we are to look at this story, I think, and see that it probably would have been wiser to do what the elders have said. Certainly would have got him a somewhat, theoretically, a better result. But I want to tell you this morning that the primary influence of a leader for God should be God. The Bible does say that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, does it not? That means that it's good to go seek out people who are wise. I have six elders who I'm accountable to, and sometimes I share an idea or share something with them, and they just look at me like I've lost my mind. It's good to be accountable to people. It's good to have wisdom from the Lord, but we start every elder meeting doing what? Praying and seeking the Lord. God, give us your wisdom. God, give us your, give us your, your light. Give us your favor. Let us know what we should be doing here. We must consult the Lord so that we can stand before him with integrity of heart and say, God, nothing that I was doing, nothing that I engaged in, did I in any way feel like went against what you had for me or for your people. Who are you listening to? Are you listening to God's voice? You say, how do I know which is God's voice, especially when I get competing messages? Well, let's think about that for a minute. Usually God's voice will appeal to your humility. It will appeal to your growth. Usually the voice that is not of the Lord will appeal to your vanity. Usually the voice that is not of the Lord will appeal towards telling you you're awesome and you deserve. The voice that is from the Lord will remind you that all that I have and all that I am and every bit of favor that I've experienced and all of my gifts, they belong to the Lord. Thank you, God, for them. Now, Lord, use them for your purpose. Those are the voices to listen to. But that's not who Rehoboam listens to. We are in a culture that appeals to our vanity today. If you go home today and watch the Indians game, someone's going to tell you that you deserve a hot tub. (laughs) The official hot tub sponsor of the Cleveland Indians is dot, dot, dot. And you deserve it. And in your humility, someone may look at you and go, "You you don't need to be buying that. The kids need braces. You don't need a hot tub? Well, I deserve a hot tub. We have a culture that appeals to our vanity, wants to make us kings out of our own lives, wants to tell us, don't listen to anybody, and certainly don't let anybody get it over on you like these northern tribes are trying to get it over on Rehoboam. Don't let anybody treat you like that. I want to tell you, the voice of the Lord will often lead us to humility and say, no, I don't deserve. Yes, I'm willing to humble myself because I trust that God has a plan and a way. Let's make sure that integrity of heart does not get replaced by ignorance of the Lord's plan or his way. 
Well, it doesn't go well for Rehoboam. You saw the kingdom split in two. You saw it here. You see it there. Things don't go well. He gives this message back to those people, and guess what happens? They try to kill him. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. No, we're going to kill you before you get the chance to show us how that's done. That's the plan. Rehoboam hops in his chariot, literally this is what the Bible says, and has to race back to Jerusalem, to his fortress, so he doesn't uh, die. And God splits the kingdom in two. And if you look down in your story Bibles a little further, it says this turn of events was from the Lord. God knew that Solomon's household was corrupt. God knew that Rehoboam was going to be acting in these ridiculous ways. God knew that there was no regard for him, no integrity of heart within the household of Solomon. He'd even gone to Jeroboam and said, Jeroboam, I'm going to give you a chance to start fresh with most of my people. And the only reason I'm not giving you all of my people is because of Rehoboam's grandfather, David. I, 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 I just can't rip all of the kingdom from him. So what ends up happening is two kingdoms result from Rehoboam's folly. And you'll see the map up on the screen right now. What ends up happening is, is that the southern kingdom, primarily led by the, by the tribe of Judah, is that pink, and that that's was Rehoboam's kingdom. That northern kingdom there, the yellow, is Israel. That becomes Jeroboam's kingdom. And they are not nice to one another. They don't appreciate one another. But you also see from this map, which is very instructive as you read the story from about 14 onwards, just how surrounded the nation of Israel is by different enemies on all sides. And how terrible it's going to be that they are not united with Judah, who's usually their strongest tribe, and the ten northern tribes, which are part of Israel. So for those of you who are new to the story or new to the Bible, from this point forward and for about 300 years, the northern kingdom will be referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom, because it's primarily Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, and some of the Levites will be known as Judah. Israel remains pretty rich throughout its lifetime. Judah, well, we'll see what happens to Judah in just a moment. Let's go to Israel and see what Jeroboam does with the new chance that God's given his people. Go to page 196 or down to page 25 in chapter 12 to pick up the story of Jeroboam. Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. Ephraim's one of the tribes of Israel. And from there he went out and built up Peniel. So he, he fortifies himself. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the household of David. Because if people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they'll again give their allegiance to their lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They'll kill me, and they'll return to King Rehoboam. So after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he said in Bethel, and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on the high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. Jeroboam has been given an opportunity to remake God's people away from the rot that was Solomon's court. But fear overtakes him. And instead of standing upright in the midst of that fear, instead of standing up and raising a hallelujah, in the presence of his fear and his enemies, Jeroboam begins to compromise. 
for fear. And uprightness is overcome and undermined by compromise. Everything Jeroboam does is incredibly pragmatic, by the way. The Jews of that time, the Israelites, they were supposed to go to the temple of Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant was three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, and offer sacrifices to the Lord. And he thinks, if my people go into the land of Judah, to the capital of Jerusalem, and they see the beautiful temple that Solomon has built, and they enjoy the grandeur of what God is doing there, they are going to want to revert to Rehoboam. I can't have that. So therefore, I'm going to build temples of my own. In fact, you can get on Google and you can type in Tell Dan, uh, T-E-L-L Dan. Uh, do this after service. Don't do it now. If somebody does it during service, elbow them in the ribs very hard. Tell them to listen to me. But you can look up Tell Dan. You can see the temple that Jeroboam built. They're unearthing it. Jeroboam decides, you know what? I don't have an Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to build my own temples. And that way nobody has to travel to Judah. Then he thinks to himself, I don't have anything to compete with the Ark of the Covenant. And that altar and... All of the beautiful things in that temple, I don't have anything to compete. I need to give them something visual. I got it. All the nations around us have a calf god. Why don't I go ahead and make some idols? And we'll say those are God. And you know what? If I just put one in Bethel, that doesn't make a lot of sense because then people can't get there easily. Why don't I put one in the north and in the south? And I'll just call both of those calves God. That's plural for those of you who are missing what means. So all of a sudden, he does things that are very pragmatic. But every time he does one of these things, he compromises a little bit further. And we don't realize, we don't get a, a, an, an idea of his reasoning, but he just says, you know what, you know what, you don't have to be a Levite anymore to be a priest. He starts appointing priests for many of the tribes. Boy, would that go over well, wouldn't it? Hey, there's a priest from the tribe of Ephraim. That's pretty cool. We don't need the Levites anymore. Everything Jeroboam does is pragmatic. It, it's meant to look at the situation around him, to look at the culture around him, make sure that everything's smart and wise and works, but there is no uprightness in it because everything Jeroboam does is against the law of the Lord. Every bit of it. They had the book of the covenant. They had God's prescriptions for how to do things rightly before him. They knew. Jeroboam knew that they were supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year. He knew what the book of the law said. But it didn't matter because fear led to compromise, and compromise undermined his uprightness. Jeroboam goes in a completely opposite direction. But here's the problem with compromise. Compromise zaps your uprightness, and you go down and down and down under the weight of every compromise. And it continues to weigh on you because once you begin to make compromises, you have to make more to accommodate for that compromise and more to accommodate for that compromise and more to accommodate that compromise, and all of a sudden you are on your knee before something that isn't God anymore. And that's where the nation of Israel finds itself. On its knees, bowing down to gods that are not gods. Investing in gods that are not real. And losing their mandates from the God who had created them and redeemed them in order to serve something that isn't God at all. That's what compromise does. And that's why as leaders, we must know what God's standards are 
They had a book of the covenant. We have a book of the covenant too. It's called the New Testament. Testament and covenant are synonymous. We have our new covenant from Jesus Christ, which we are operating under. We know God's ways and God's standards. And every time we get away from God's ways, because fear drives us to pragmatism, we begin to bow down to something that is not God. And I want to tell you today, when we walk in uprightness before the Lord, there is a clarity and a sensibleness to it that leaves us in a place where we're not bowed down to anybody but the one that we should be. That's why when you lead, don't compromise. The Bible has so much clarity to it. If we'll just seek God's will and his way. We don't need to bow down to the culture. God's people never, ever looked like the culture. At least they weren't supposed to. Not 3,000 years ago, not today. We're never supposed to look like the outside world. We're called into something different. We can't look at the prevailing winds of culture and go, we have to look like that. And I'm talking about ethics here, not style. I'm talking about God's commands for right living. I'm not talking about the way we dress. Honestly, if, if somebody wanted to found a church tomorrow and, and everybody just wore Hawaiian shirts and sandals to church, I wouldn't care. That's style. That's style. But God's standards and what he has called us to and what he has told us is good and right and holy, those are the things we mustn't compromise. Because those are the things that will leave us bowed down to a culture that has nothing for us. You want to exert influence? You want to lead? You want to be a person that God has for you to be? You must operate in integrity of heart. And you must consider living an upright life. Because otherwise, you're going to be bowed down to something else. Now, you may be thinking, what happened in the southern kingdom? Did things go well there? And the answer is no. In fact, Rehoboam does the same thing. He sets up high places in the shadow of the temple and allows his kingdom to bow down to all types of other gods. Except Rehoboam does Jeroboam one better. He introduces human sex trafficking into the equation. Male shrine prostitutes are now in the land. God's not going to stand for it. For the sake of time, we won't read it this morning. But God lifts his hand of protection from Judah, and the king of Egypt comes in and swarms the land of Judah. He sacks both the palace and the temple, and the Bible says he carried away everything. Solomon had adorned his palace with golden shields. And the writer of Kings wants to tell us that those shields were stolen. And Rehoboam decided that he would make bronze shields, replicas of those golden shields. And instead of hanging them in the palace, his command would wear those shields every day in front of the palace. Could you imagine being somebody who was 25, 35, 45, who had seen the riches and splendor of the kingdom of Solomon. And every day you walk by the palace and see the king's guard carrying bronze shields. The price of bronze today is about eight cents an ounce. I looked it up just in case I decide to become a junker. 
I ask our resident jeweler, Todd Alvis, uh, what's the price of an ounce of gold today? And as of Wednesday, it was $1,284. You see, the people of God had traded inestimable worth for cheap replicas. That's what happens when we don't have integrity of heart. That's what happens when we do compromise and don't allow us to stand in uprightness before the Lord. We trade inestimable worth for cheap replicas, gold for bronze. It's a sad state of affairs, but none of us have to live there. There is nothing today that precludes you from seeking the Lord. Nothing today that keeps you from reading the Bible in your own language to understand it so that you can walk upright before God. Nothing in the way of you today exerting godly influence in your home, in your school, in your workplace, in your playgroup, in your neighborhood. There is nothing in the way of you being the leader that God has meant you to be. Because being God's leader and affecting his kingdom is of inestimable worth. It's the only thing that you have that's going to last into eternity. That which you do for God. That's it. The rest of the things we bow the knee to are just cheap replicas of the good stuff. And the good stuff is thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. Let us walk with integrity before the Lord. Innocence of heart that says, Jesus, I know who you are, who you say I am, and what you want of me. Thank you for these gifts in my life. Thank you for your favor in my life. Thank you for salvation in my life. Thank you for everything I have. It belongs to you. Use it now for your glory, Lord Jesus. It's integrity of heart. Uprightness is saying, I know that things over there look like we should do that. And I know that things over there look like we should do that. But God has a standard, and I want to make sure that my heart is clear before him so I will not compromise what God has called good for the bad. And I will not compromise what God has called bad and now myself call it good. I won't do that because I serve him and him alone. If you stand in that type of resolve, you're golden. God can use you powerfully. Will you stand in that resolve with integrity of heart and uprightness before the Lord? Would you bow your heads and pray with me?